back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. This week, I am joined by Rachel Saltzman, uh, the author of the recent book, Russia, Bricks, and the Disruption of Global Order. We're going to talk about, well, Russia, Bricks, and the Disruption of Global Order. Please join us. joined on Russian Roulette this week by Rachel Saltzman, uh, author of the recent book, Russia, Bricks, and the Disruption of Global Order. Uh, Rachel, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. So what is BRICS? Uh, obviously, it's an acronym, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. But beyond that, what is it and, and why does it matter? BRICS has many things to many people uh, and many countries. So it's maybe worth delineating the beginning of BRICS and then the BRICS that I'm writing about, which is the BRICS platform. And then we can talk maybe a bit more broadly about what BRICS is to its members, which is something more of a philosophical discussion. In terms of just the raw history, the term BRIC, Brazil, Russia, India, China, originates with a paper out of Goldman Sachs in 2001, identifying the future leaders of the global economy. So life imitates investment banking. Yeah, a little bit, but it moves in some interesting ways. So that initial paper is then followed up by a Goldman Sachs paper in 2003, Dreaming with Bricks. And 2003 is an interesting moment because that paper is, again, very investment focused. But 2003 is a moment where there's a lot of consternation about American foreign policy. You have the invasion of Iraq uh, and, and some other less popular initiatives. And the idea of BRICS, of these non-Western countries becoming the leaders of the global economy, moves into what other scholars have called the marketplace of ideas. And from there, you start seeing organization at a political level. This also, though, is not sui generis and specifically about the Goldman Sachs BRICS term. This comes in two, I would say, antecedent organizations in a loose term. The first of these is Russia, India, China, a strategic tri triangle initially proposed by Evgeny Primakov in the late 90s and then later reestablished as a dialogue forum in around 2002, and also IBSA, the India-Brazil-South Africa Dialogue Forum, which was established in 2003 by those three countries, essentially as an explicit expression of discontent after all three had been invited to the Evian G8 summit in France and felt that their perspectives were not actually given sufficient airtime. So you have these two differing groups of developing countries coordinating. And then in 2005, at the behest of President Putin, there's a meeting of the Deputy Foreign Ministers of the BRIC countries, so without South Africa. That eventually gathers steam, especially after the global financial crisis. And, you know, we should talk more in depth about why that's an important inflection point. BRIC, small s, becomes BRIC's big S in 2011 when South Africa formally joins as a full member. And at this point, I think it's important to delineate between the Goldman Sachs BRICS, small s, and the BRICS big S dialogue format as two really intellectually distinct issues. And for what it's worth, Wikipedia also includes different entries on both. They are <laughs> different ideas. The arbiter of all things. Indeed. In the marketplace of ideas. It's an interesting collection of countries because um, when you think about most multilateral organizations, either they're pretty global in scope uh, and they encompass countries from all over the world or they're regional. So, you know, you have like ASEAN or the Organization of American States. And the fact that they're located in one region means that they have a lot of uh, common challenges, common problems in their relationships at the bilateral and multilateral level um, overlap to a significant degree. 
But BRICS is a little bit different because it's neither of those things. It's restricted in its membership and apart from Russia, India, China, it's geographically quite dispersed as well. Um, so what brings them together other than the fact that they feel like their voices aren't being heard in the existing international order? There's a lot of ways to answer that. But actually, the place I'll start is exactly these are countries that have been historically, and I mean this not in a value-laden way, but in terms of how global order from the perspective of the West has been managed. These are all countries that have been peripheral to that conversation. Of course, under the Soviet Union, Russia was an arbiter of the other half of the bipolar order, but it was still in dialogue with that which the U.S. thought of as the dominant global order. And countries like India, Brazil, South Africa, and China have all also been either loosely aligned with one of those blocks, but not the leading member, or in the case of India, the non-aligned movement, which is specifically about not being a member of one or the other dominant orders. Now, of course, India was uh, operationally much closer to the Soviet Union than it was to the United States. Right. But the joke here used to be that India was non-aligned against us. Precisely. But if you're looking sort of just in terms of the way history is told, the narratives that are told by each country about itself, which I think are incredibly important in understanding where BRICS comes from. So the fact of these being five fairly large, continentally important countries that feel as though they have had insufficient voice in the dominant system, especially since the demise of the Soviet Union when there has been only one ordered system, even if that order was always a bit frayed around the edges, is actually an important rallying point and not only in the negative sense, right? Also in the positive sense of uniting to have uh, what they would call a more just order. Now, the question of whether or not they have a vision for what that more just order would look like is a very different question. But I would say that there is a unifying piece there. The other thing I would say on this point is that I think we are very conditioned to think about groups of states in terms of logical ordering. And what that means is either regional, uh, as you mentioned, or value-based, or level of development, something like that. BRICS, of course, doesn't really hit any of those except for RIC, the Russia-India-China, mm -hmm. which has common security concerns, even though two of those members are also each other's common security concerns. Um, which is an interesting wrinkle in that story. But I think that what we see in a lot of developing states, and, and in particular in the BRICS format, or even in its antecedents in RIC and IBSA, is a willingness and a great ability to cooperate in areas where there is agreement to achieve limited common aims without letting things like not shared values or different levels of development or different economic or political structures hinder places where progress can be made. Yeah. So we talk about BRICS as an element of global order. And I don't know, I'm feeling the, the need for funny aphorisms today. But, you know, one of the lines that international relations scholars have been using recently is that the liberal international order trademark. It was really neither liberal nor international nor, in fact, an order. And what it sounds like from our discussion is that in a lot of ways, the BRICS countries are in one way or another on the periphery of or maybe even further away from what we think of as the liberal international order. So to the extent that there is a common 
vision underpinning the BRICS format, how much overlap is there with what we think of as the liberal international order? That is, how liberal or illiberal or maybe aliberal uh, is BRICS or does it even have a position on, on some of these key issues of, of global order that the United States and its allies have been trying to promote since at least the collapse of the Soviet Union? Sure. I'm going to start with that with a bit of how I would interpret the you know liberal international order trademark, uh, which is uh, something that I think BRICS is very much in dialogue with. And I would say that the liberal international order is not one order. The way I conceive of it, and there's lots of different ways to define it. In my book, I use a definition that comes from a 2010 book looking at the UN, but that definition is really overly broad and intentionally so. And it talks about institutions as we would from the West think about that, things like the IMF or the UN, something that is has a firm bureaucracy and place in the system and clear directives as well, even if one or another of those institutions is accused of mission creep or other sins. It also includes informal groupings, such as the G8, mm -hmm. the G20, I would put BRICS here, but also other formats that may have begun as, as more informal, such as ASEAN, which then become more institutionalized. The G7 started as more informal and has become much more institutionalized. In addition, you have ideas. And ideas is where stuff gets both squishy but also quite important. Underpinning this constellation of formal and informal institutions or groupings or things in what the West thinks of as the liberal international order since 1945 are what I would classify as essentially two distinct sets of ideas, one about economics and one about values and politics. On the economic side, it's historically about open markets, free mm -hmm. trade, things like that. And ideas about that have evolved over time, right? You look at the failure to form the international trade organization as part of the Bretton Woods system or and in the negotiations that followed shortly thereafter. And you instead get GATT, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, Tariffs and Trade. And it takes until 1995 with the conclusion of the Uruguay Round to get the World Trade Organization. But it's all moving towards a trend of successively opening markets. And greater institutionalization. And greater institutionalization and greater and firmer rules on international trade. The WTO has an arbitration body, mm -hmm. right, that you can go before the appellate body. The other side of this from the economics, and they're intertwined, right? As you and I both know, political scholars, political scientists for a long time have been talking about the intersection between democracy and markets mm -hmm. and the extent to which you need one for the other or whether markets work better under democracy. Or promote democracy. Or promote democracy. All of those ideas. So I'm not saying that these are completely separate, but I think it's useful to think about them in different cones because the BRICS interact with them differently. Mm-hmm. The BRICS countries and then the BRICS group. On the norms side, you have belief in things like democracy, representative government, all of that. But you also have, especially, I would argue, since 1991, increasing emphasis on human rights. This, of course, from our side, we would often date actually from 75 with the Helsinki Final Act and the identification of, of human rights as a place where you can intrude on domestic affairs, roughly. But also by 2005, for example, right, um, responsibility to protect in the UN. And the evolution on the norm side is one of the places where BRICS is 
arguably most active, even though their stated platform is primarily on the economic side. If you look at most BRICS statements, it focuses on having more representative global economic governance, Mm -hmm. having the main institutions of global governance, particularly the IMF and the World Bank, because those are the most institutionalized. And also, they don't need to fight against the G8 anymore because the G20 has really overtaken what is now the G7, now again the G7. And the different BRICS countries have different perspectives on open markets and Mm -hmm. whether or not a market-based system is the best way to run their economy. But that's not really the main fight they have historically been having with the system. Right. I would argue that the main fight they have been having with the system comes down to one question, and that question is, who gets to determine who is a legitimate actor, in air quotes? And what BRICS really unifies on is the United States and, to a lesser extent, Europe, although Europe prides itself on being kind of a leading great power on norms and human rights, but the the United States tends to be more vocal, frankly. Mm-hmm. And so countries like China and Russia, but also India and Brazil and South Africa are very not pleased with the U.S.'s self-designation as the arbiter on who is a good player in the international system. And maker of rules and norms. Maker of – exactly. They want to be rule makers, not rule takers. And Mm -hmm. I think that's fundamental. So since you're talking about institutionalization in the context of other multilateral organizations like GATT becoming the WTO, uh, that does seem to be the trend. Um, Have we seen similar developments with BRICS since its uh, inauguration? Yes and no. Uh, We have seen the creation of actual institutions as we as Western scholars would define them, which is to say the New Development Bank, which is Mm -hmm. the BRICS Development Bank, which was formed – the paper was signed in 2014 in Fortaleza and then opened officially in 2015. It's active. It lends on green uh, energy uh, and infrastructure issues. And it has a regional office in Johannesburg. It is in South Africa. I think it's in Johannesburg. And it will be opening offices also in India and China and Brazil. I think the Brazil one opened recently. So that is an actual institution. It has staff. Mm -hmm. It has programs. It has deadlines. It has money. It has money. Yes. And it has membership. And there are questions about whether or not the NDB would be open Mm -hmm. to non-BRICS countries. And I think that's still an open question, but is something that is actively debated. Uh, They also have a currency pool, the contingency reserve Mm -hmm. arrangement, which is for emergency liquidity needs. The interesting thing actually about the CRA is that it is – the contingency reserve Mm -hmm. arrangement – is that it is linked in ways to the IMF. Mm -hmm. As much as BRICS will complain about the lack of representation in major Western organs of global economic governance, if you look at the text of the CRA, at least as originally written in 2014, in order to get the – all of the money that you had put in and get it for a year as compared to six months, you also have to be under an IMF program. The Mm. the BRICS country would have to be under an IMF program. And I think that actually really supports BRICS's argument that they are not against the order. Mm -hmm. They are about expanding the order. And it's still really TBD on some of that. Mm -hmm. But the fact that some of the institutions they're creating are in dialogue with existing institutions does bolster that argument. BRICS itself, just to sort of close the thought, does also have a massive proliferation of working groups Mm -hmm. and issues about which it meets. It does not have a staff or a secretariat or a bureaucracy. And I don't know that we would see that. Okay. 
So your book is called Russia, Bricks and the Disruption of Global Order. In fact, people can't see it because we're on audio, but there's a picture of Vladimir Putin on the cover. Uh, so how much is BRICS linked to specifically Russian foreign policy objectives to Putin? And was the justification or the story about what BRICS does different uh, in Russia from in the other countries that you looked at? I think that's a great question and a fundamental question. I'm a Russia policy wonk and Russian history and political relations expert by training. I became a BRICS expert by accident. Right. Well, because you wrote a book about it. But in looking at Russian interaction with the global system since the end of the Soviet Union or in the end of the Cold War, BRICS is a really interesting example of Russian ongoing efforts to create alternative institutions in instances when it has felt excluded from dominant institutions. So the best examples of these, if you're looking for kind of a an example set are those that Russia has created within the Eurasian space, particularly the Collective Security Treaty Organization, the CSTO, which is often seen as Russia's answer to NATO, or the Eurasian Economic Union, Russia's answer to the European Union. Of course, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization is also in there, kind of an answer to NATO, kind of also other things about managing relations in the East, so it doesn't fit as neatly in. All of these, but especially the prior two, are examples of places where Russia felt that it did not have a voice in the dominant Euro-Atlantic institution. They weren't wrong. They mm -hmm. didn't. And created a... Simulacrum. A simulacrum, exactly, which don't quite do exactly what the others do, what mm -hmm. their um, models do, and that's intentional. Russia doesn't like institutions that are intrusive domestically, and I think that's key. If you think about NATO, right, mm -hmm. becoming interoperable means you have to do a lot of things to your own military. Right. The European Union means you have to change all of your laws based on the acquis. Mm -hmm. Russia doesn't like that. Russia likes to have prestige in terms of membership, but very low responsibility in terms of domestic action. And the arduous journey to WTO membership is one of the ways that we see that, actually. So BRICS is in there as feeling as though the current order writ large is insufficient and unrepresentative and, frankly, gives the U.S. too much power. It is in there because it lets Russia, especially at the point where the BRICS were growing quite quickly, loop itself in with that and say, we are strong, rising Russia, and we have other partners who will become ever more important. But to get to your question about is the story of BRICS the same as the story of Russia and BRICS, I would say very much no. The role that BRICS plays for Russia and the quite interesting and innovative ways that Russia under Putin has used the idea of BRICS to further Russian foreign policy aims are not synonymous with the role that BRICS plays or has played for its other members. Where does BRICS fit in, in Russia's conception of, of global order right now? Because you mentioned groups like Eurasian Economic Union, Collective Security Treaty Organization, this Russian penchant for creating new institutional fora um, in response to its exclusion from Western-dominated fora. Relative to all of these others and relative to Russia's overall vision of global order and its role in it, um, where does BRICS fit? How, do, how does Putin's Russia circa 2019-2020 uh, see BRICS? Sure. With the singular exception 
of 2014 to the end of 2015, BRICS for Russia has been first and foremost a rhetorical weapon, something to talk about and frame as either a bridge between old and new in periods where U.S.-Russian relations have been stronger or as the new thing that's coming and the Western order will be out in instances where Russian-Western relations have been weaker. It's been a very useful rhetorical weapon. And one of the things I talk about in the book is the link between what politicians talk about and how you can interpret that in terms of coming policy or how they wish policy to be understood. BRICS at this point is much less useful there. And I think it is also less operationally useful than it was in terms of bringing new trade deals and things like that that you saw in the immediate aftermath of the Ukraine crisis. Again, Russia will not abandon BRICS. Russia will still talk about it. Russia also holds the chairmanship in 2020. And so BRICS is going to be top of line mm-hmm. for that year because Russia is event-focused and you know wants to put on a good summit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Where are they going to hold the summit? I don't know that that's announced yet, but I do believe it will, again, be joint with the SCO the way it was in 2015 in Ufa. And that's another way of raising the profile yeah. of you know Russian-created organizations. The leader of the, the chair of the BRICS summit also is always able to invite whoever it wants. And mm-hmm. so historically, regional allies are invited. You saw that in Brazil. You've seen that in South Africa. And you saw that also in, in Ufa with the SCO and other uh, regional countries. And I would expect to see the same. So BRICS is essentially another rhetorical tool in the rhetorical arsenal. And I don't mean that glibly. It is Mm -hmm. useful for putting forward the Russian narrative about Russia's place in the order, how Russia sees the problems in the current order, and how Russia would wish to see the order evolve. I think we all know, and I'm certainly not the first Russia expert to say this, that what Russia would wish is a concert of Vienna-type situation, an agreement among great powers. Mm. BRICS will never get Russia that objective. But it is yet another way of talking about, look, we should expand the order, we should expand membership to great powers, not to secondary powers. And it makes Russia look constructive rather Mm -hmm. than destructive. Right. Russia is not just trying to break down the old order, but it actually has ideas for what a new order might look like. Precisely. So for the research of the book, you looked at Russia and also at China and India. So could you talk a little bit about how, uh, well, Beijing and and New Delhi view the organization and sort of what the story they tell about it is? Sure. Um, I'll take China first because that's actually a bit more straightforward. Uh, For China, first off, I think it is very much de-emphasizing BRICS at this point. China did not like the initial suggestion by Primakov in the late 90s for the Russia-India-China triangle, specifically because it was too anti-Western in addition to a couple of other issues. When the idea of BRICS comes along, that's no longer as much of an issue, both because of discontent with the West and because China's own position has changed. It's a WTO member. Mm -hmm. It's growing quite quickly, all of these things. And then during the global financial crisis, BRICS all of a sudden proves itself as actually quite useful for achieving Chinese aims of gaining more say in places like the IMF and with the overtaking by the G20 of what was then still the G8 as the preeminent informal group. In 2008, China is still very much trying to hide its brightness, to quote part of the traditional- Deng Xiaoping's uh, yes, famous exactly. description of Chinese foreign policy. So in 2008, China is still trying to not scare people with its rise. 
it, it's, it's unsure what the rise is going to be. It's unsure, and by people I mean countries. China is still trying to be with the pack of developing countries is probably the best way to put mm-hmm. this. BRICS allows it to hide in that group. It also has the, I would argue, for for China extra effect of Russia is often willing to be very vocal and obstreperous. Mm-hmm. And that's one of its MOs on the international stage. And it means that within the BRICS group, Russia can be loud, mm-hmm. China can be quiet, but still have its aims accomplished. It's not, it doesn't work on every metric, but it is something China gets out of it. At the point that China is no longer looking to be as careful in how assertive it appears, BRICS becomes less useful. Because they don't need to hide behind Russia. Exactly. And they don't need to hide within the group of developing countries. They mm-hmm. are still, you know, they still self-classify as a developing country and all of that, but they don't need to appear to be at the same level as India. They're quite willing to uh-huh. appear to be quite a bit more powerful. When she comes in in 2012, he is a very different ruler than who was uh, for a lot of reasons, but he also starts looking more at a much more assertive Chinese foreign policy. He gives BRICS some time to see if it's going to do the things he wants to accomplish at the point that it becomes that BRICS is not that group and that's not the role that BRICS plays. She really starts focusing elsewhere. I think it's very unlikely he leaves the group. Mm -hmm. Everyone gets a boost from that photo op every year of the leader summit. No one has missed a leader summit despite leadership changes in all countries and even when leaders have been under enormous pressure in their countries, such as Brazil um, during the investigation into Rousseff and her ultimate impeachment. So that's China. China now is, I think, just not super into it, actually, for lack of a better term. For India, you have a different story that is related to the China story but not quite the same thing. Uh, So for India, on the one hand, it is, you know, a place to sit with its main partners. Both Russia is historically a big partner. China is one of its largest economic partners. It has prestige. It looks good. It's working towards giving India a larger voice in some organs of economic governance, all of the good things that all all of the countries wish to get out of it. It is also helpful, and this comes from research that Samir Saran, who's an Indian expert on BRICS, has done, and it looks at the issue of India's very public identity as a developing country. And I don't mean that in the sense of China clings to the designation. Mm -hmm. A lot of India's self-definition and self-identity is as a leader of developing nations, Mm -hmm. and that's both from its history as leader of the non-aligned movement and then also the position it's taken since the end of the Cold War. As India has grown economically and as India's international power has increased as well, not as quickly as its economic growth, but in the sense of it's seen as a great power in waiting. It is understood that India, once it reaches development potential, will Mm -hmm. be a major global power. Marrying that fact and the desire for a seat at the high table with the domestic and popular and historical definition as a developing power is difficult. There's a disconnect there. Right. You can and be so, one or the other. It's hard to be both. And BRICS helps you do both because BRICS is powerful, rising, developing countries. Russia, not really a developing country as we would think about it, but in terms of BRICS's mantle as being the leader of the developing world or self-designated at least, mm-hmm. it has helped historically India square that circle. 
since 2015, which is also when you see China starting to lose interest, India also has become less interested for reasons both in terms of its domestic development, concerns mm -hmm. over the Russia-China relationship, concerns over the India-China relationship, things like that. But for a moment, BRICS was actually very useful in terms of managing, especially the bureaucracy within the Indian government, of how to position. So since we're in Washington, I guess I have to ask you, what has been the US government's approach to BRICS? Um, and do you think it's the right approach? What approach? There is at least meetings of which I am aware. There has been exactly one meeting by a US official with the BRICS as BRICS. And that happened in April 2009 at the Pittsburgh G20, when then US Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner met with all four BRICS finance ministers. It's worth noting that the period from 2008 to 2010 is also when I would argue that the BRICS were most successful on the international stage, and that has a lot to do with their achievement of pushing through certain reforms in the aftermath of the acute phase of the global financial crisis. Their work since then has been much more domestic or internal, intra-BRICS, and even the creation of the new institutions, which are obviously now parts of global economic order are more focused on activity within the countries themselves. Other than that, the U.S. does not have a policy on BRICS. The U.S. has a policy on China and right. on Russia, kind of, and on India, but it doesn't have a policy on the coordination. And I actually think that this is a real lacuna in American foreign policy. And the reason is not because the BRICS are coming for us and we better be nice, right, which I think has been some of the thinking certainly right around the, the global financial crisis. The reason I think it's a lacuna is we should take seriously formats which our partners and strategic adversaries take seriously to understand what they're doing mm -hmm. and how we can best engage to protect and promote U.S. interests. Looking at each of the countries individually and dealing only on the bilateral basis accomplishes a lot, especially since BRICS is such a flexible and uninstitutionalized institution. But if we're not thinking seriously about the role that the BRICS group coordination plays in both informal and formal elements of global governance, as well as efforts, whether intentional or after the fact of BRICS, to contradict or undermine or challenge what we would think of as key norms underpinning the international order. If we don't engage on that, that leaves a battle unfought that if we believe in these norms, and I, by battle I do mean diplomatic, not yeah, right, right. kinetic, we should be engaging on these questions. So you talked a little bit about how BRICS kind of hit its political high point, say around 2008, 2010. Obviously, it still exists. It still meets. None of the leaders has, has missed a summit. What, if you were to prognosticate, would you think BRICS' future looks like? Does it have much of a future or is it going to look kind of like what it does today? Is it going to change in some way? Um, what role does it have in an international system in which, one, tensions between major powers like Russia and China on the one hand and the United States on the other are growing, where the issue of the underrepresentation of developing countries in international institutions is being addressed to a greater or lesser degree, where you have political change taking place in all of these countries. What does, what does BRICS look like five or 10 years from now? That's a great question. There are two sides of it. One of the things I've been thinking about both when I was finishing up the book manuscript 
uh, in around 2018. And then since then, as I've done talks and presentations, is what BRICS looks like in what I'm calling an age of strategic uncertainty. And that is not just strategic uncertainty for the BRICS, all of whom are in moments themselves, domestically or internationally. What does BRICS look like in a world where the U.S. and Europe are rethinking their global roles? BRICS was not, is not exclusively anti-U.S. or anti-Western, but that is one of its themes, whether that is termed as adversarially anti-Western or termed as a need to have a better apportioned representation in global governance. If the U.S. is reconsidering whether or not it needs to be all things to all countries and everywhere for its own national security. And that's a conversation that, of course, is heightened under this administration, but arguably has been happening for quite a long time. If we remember President Obama getting a lot of flack for saying leading from behind, I think another way of interpreting leading from behind is thinking about does the U.S. always need to be out in front Mm -hmm. and is that in the U.S. national interest? There's more there, right? And you know, this isn't a conversation about U.S. foreign policy, but I just want to contextualize that this isn't just about decisions made by President Trump and his administration, mm-hmm. but also longer standing conversations. The U.S. Of- has been rethinking its position in the global system for a long time. Exactly. And it seems to be increasing exponentially as opposed to arithmetically, <laughs> but it is a longstanding trend. Similarly, Europe, the EU isn't quite sure what kind of grown-up power it wants to be. And it is also fighting with the U.S. a lot, and that puts tension on joint efforts to hold up the values Mm -hmm. and the institutions that historically the U.S. and Europe have worked to create and preserve. If BRICS is pushing on an open door, especially since it is a loose formation even though they do have some unifying principles, it's unclear what BRICS's role is. As you said, institutions are changing, global governance is changing. And so a lot of what BRICS has talked about of needing better representation for its members is already on deck. Some of it may not be on deck, but is also something not all the BRICS would want, Mm -hmm. most notably the UN Security Council. Right? Russia and China are in a different position on how they would see that body change and evolve than are the IBSA countries, Brazil, India, and South Africa. The other side of that is the extent to which BRICS is still useful for its members. And we've talked about China and we've talked about India. The one in terms of the ones that I've looked at that we haven't talked about is Russia. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that it is not clear that BRICS is as useful for Russia as it was five years ago. It is still prestigious in the sense of it has the major rising powers. It is still useful to go to the summits. But BRICS is proving less useful as a tool or as a battering ram against the current global order, which especially since the onset of the crisis in Ukraine has been a key goal of Russia vis-a-vis BRICS, even though they would never say it as such. So therefore, Russia has also reformulated its position. Russia has seen how China and India have reacted. Russia has seen places where the U.S. and and Europe are rethinking. And Russia is therefore also refocusing, especially on the Eurasian Economic Union and the Greater Eurasian Partnership. So to answer the question somewhat the long way around, BRICS will persist, but I would argue it will not grow and deepen to the extent that we might have thought it would when we saw the flurry Mm -hmm. of institutional creation and working group creation in the first five to ten years of its existence. All right, great. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. 
Okay, that is it for our show today. Thanks for joining. Uh, you can find a link to Rachel's book, uh, as well as the video of the recent event she did at CSIS uh, in the show notes. Uh, if you haven't done so already, please do subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And if you don't use iTunes, you can check us out and subscribe on Google Play or SoundCloud. Keep spreading the word. Uh, also, please send us your mailbag questions. Uh, you can email them to rep at csis.org and put the words Russian roulette in the subject line. You can follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia, or you can follow me at Dr. J. Mankoff. I'd also like to take the time to thank everybody who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. Uh, that includes especially our producer, research associate, and program manager, Roxana Gabidulina, and the entire CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thank you for listening. Snovim Golem. Mm-hmm.